Welcome to the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. Each week on the podcast, you'll hear stories and tactics from experts and influencers who will provide you with actionable steps to transform your business and your life. I'm your host, Larissa McClemon, and I help salon owners move from stress and overwhelm to lead a life of freedom and profit by implementing a strategic framework to grow and scale their business. So wherever you are in the world, I want to officially invite you to join me in this episode and make an important step in your journey towards more freedom and more profit. There are a few questions I get asked a lot when I work with salon owners. But without a doubt, one of the most common and most stressed questions sounds like this. My team member is leaving and they're opening a salon down the road. Help! Like, I totally get the pain. This is seriously a stressful situation. Been there. And there are actually quite a few problems like this that crop up for salon owners. Like, I'm sure as you listen to this, you can picture a time when a similar stressful situation happened to you. I think the smartest way to deal with these types of fireballs is to future-proof your business, know your rights legally, and make sure that you're protected where possible by law against future problems. That's why today I wanted to bring you into this episode with Corey Sterling. Now, through his business, Conscious Counsel, Corey provides legal counsel for business owners in the health and wellness space. Yep, that's us here in Beauty Salon Owners. So tune in today on how to protect your business and yourself by utilizing legal practices. Let's meet Corey. Corey, thank you so much for joining me on the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. Pleased to have you here. Larissa, what a pleasure it is to be speaking with you today. Well, look, let's get started by saying, uh, letting us know, where are you in the world? What do you do? What is your business? How did you get to be having the business that you have? I am currently in Brazil. I'm in the state of Bahia in a small little town called Caraiva. And I'm a lawyer. I started a law firm called Conscious Counsel. I started in Vancouver, BC about four years ago. And I, I decided to take my law firm online four years ago and travel the world. And I ended up in this small little beach town, which is where I'm currently hanging out. Uh, our legal practice is different than other legal practices. We work um, almost exclusively with health and wellness professionals, whether that's in the massage space, the salon space, the, the spa space, um, the yoga space, the Pilates space, or the fitness space. The reason why we work with these types of clients is because I worked for a couple of years at a big law firm in Vancouver, and I was not very happy with the type of people I was working with. So I wanted to uh, choose my own clients, basically, and be able to work with people who inspired me to do great work as a lawyer. Our biggest principle at Conscious Counsel is to make law fun. So I'm a pretty relaxed, easygoing, informal guy, and I try to bring that ethos and that vibe to the legal documents that we create and the legal advice that we support our clients with. We practice something called heart-leading law, which means using the law, but also using our heart to make decisions and also being real people in acting as entrepreneurs. And basically I just saw there was a massive gap that health and wellness owners didn't really understand anything about the law. So how could I find a way to communicate it to them on their own terms? I love that. I love that you've found a really clear niche. I love that you're helping a really specific demographic that typically would I be so bold to say is otherwise bury their head in the sand and don't want to look at it because it is boring, it's jargony and it's, uh, you know, 
uh, a bunch of men in suits who don't <laughs> speak the same language. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, I think it's really great that you uh, uh, are doing the complete opposite. Thank you. You're allowed to say it. that's also how things used to be done. Now things are being done differently. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's dig in. Uh, I asked you to you know come and talk about three things that salon owners really need, like what are the most important things that we really need to open our eyes to get really clear on as creative entrepreneurs. So let's talk about that. The first one you suggested was getting our legal documentation right. So speak to us about that. I know that part of the aim of the work that you do with your community is to sort of help breed and develop CEOs. And I think what's cool about thinking of a, of a salon owner as a CEO is it's assuming that air of responsibility and professionalism around the business. And one thing that I can tell you is inevitable is if you have a business and you're planning on growing, inevitably you are going to interact with the law. There is going to be something that is happening for a going business or a growing concern that you will need legal support or there will be a legal situation that will unfold in front of you in some degree. And I think the first and most important message is turning the CEO's mind to the importance of having legal documents, to using legal documents, to understanding legal documents, and, and sort of having a paradigm shift of not thinking about how intimidating it is or how stressful it is or how expensive it is or how uncomfortable it is. And instead realizing that you can choose to look at the law in a really empowering way. And as CEO of the business, you can have all of your ducks in a row and you can communicate in all of your expectations openly and honestly and have it supported in writing. And I share that as the first piece of information, which I believe is most important based on the sheer repetition of examples I've been through with clients and the most common problems that I see wellness professionals going through. And it's almost always rooted to either signing something that's not tailored for you and your business or signing something that you don't understand or not having anything signed at all. Mm. So what do you think are the things that, uh, the core things that we need to have in terms of legal documents to be able to open, operate and employ? You, the, the first, the way that I coach my clients to think about the law and how I would encourage everyone listening to think about the law, look at the law as a series of relationships that you have. Like this is part of that paradigm shift that we're going through. So what you wanna do and wherever you are listening in the world, you wanna take a piece of paper and you, you write the name of your business in the middle of the piece of paper. And then you draw a line to all the different people that you work with or work for or who work for you. And these are the different relationships that you have. So for example, uh, if you're renting a physical space, you have a landlord. Uh, if you have a team who works with you, depending on what position they are, they may be a contractor, they may be an employee, but that's a different line that you have, a different relationship that you have. Obviously, you have your clients, so that's a different relationship that you have. You probably buy product from some form of supplier. That's a different relationship that you have. And so what I want everyone to think about and, and the goal for you know this bird's eye perspective of how we operate legally is looking at the different relationships that we have and the question being how can i communicate openly and honestly in this relationship 
And how can I let my communications known, excuse me, how can I let my expectations known in this particular relationship? And the reason why I provide such a holistic and simplistic approach to looking at each of our relationships is because almost all of the issues that I have to resolve for my clients will arise from some form of either lack of communication or a, la or a misalignment of expectation. So if you can use the legal agreement, I'm not telling everyone out there to, you know, go find a lawyer right now and make sure, you know, spend thousands of dollars to get everything organized. What I want everyone to think about and turn their mind to is that the real purpose of law is to help you communicate openly and honestly in the various relationships that you have. And the better job that you can do of communicating your expectations for those respective relationships, the less chance you have of there being an issue and the more chance you have of, of having a thriving relationship and ultimately less legal headaches in the future. Yeah, I really like that. Setting up expect, really it's about setting up setting up expectations prior to the commencement of the relationship so everybody knows what's expected how it's going to work and you can step forward and get on with doing good work right exactly and the other part to that as well and this is what i've seen from clients who i've worked with you're you're right that the conversation has to happen before you start working together and and what i see is if there are issues that come up between clients like uh my one of my clients and let's say and they're one of someone who works for them or someone who's coming to their salon or something of the like and you let that person know up front what they can expect in working with you and they disagree or they don't like it or they don't want to participate that's the easiest time for you to exit that relationship it's mm -hmm. sort of like hey this is this is how things are going to go if you want to work on our team this is how things work read the agreement we've put all of our expectations out there Everything's out there for you to see. If you want to move forward, you know, this will be a legally binding agreement upon you and we will both live up to our end of this agreement. But also if having gone through this agreement, you realize this is not the opportunity for you, then this is the perfect time for us to not start a relationship together. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Clears up a lot of future problems. Hey, I just wanted to pop in to tell you something. Don't worry, we're going to get back to this awesome episode in just a second. Now, if this sounds like you, listen up. You have a team. You love your team. But you're sick of wondering why and wishing your team would make their sales targets. You want them to be smashing sales because it shows that they're actually looking after their clients really well. Like imagine if you could have a way to make more from the clients that you already have. Increase sales without spending more on advertising. Well, it's totally possible and I want to help you. And I want to help you do it with ease, in a classy way. No hard and dirty sales tricks here. Ways to serve your clients, make more, because everybody wins. The team, the client, and of course, you, the business owner. Now, if you want to find out more, just DM me uh, and let's chat. I'll make a plan for you. I'm also going to leave a link for you on the show notes of this episode. All right, let's get back to the episode. What about if I don't have a legal document, I'm already in a relationship, but now I feel like there's a need to do so. What are your thoughts around that? I think there's, it. What one thing that I always coach my clients on is that like law and legal documents is often about storytelling. 
So you're going to, you're going to have this agreement and let's say you have to change it. And it used to be that we did things a certain way. And I'll give a personal example. I used to, for the team who works with me, I used to, I pay them uh, electronically and I used to cover the cost of the transaction fee, which is 3%. And then for whatever reasons, I spoke with, you know, a business coach and some of other colleagues who I work with. And all of them said like, no, you probably shouldn't be doing that. You don't charge, charge your clients that 3%. Other people who are contractors don't charge that 3%, whatever. And then, so at that point, I have to go back to my team and say, hey, like, this is how, when we started doing things, this is how we did things, but I need to pivot and I need to make a change. And moving forward, this is how things are going to be. And it's not always easy to do that. And sometimes it's uncomfortable to do it, but it's ex exactly what you're mentioning. It's an instance where the relationship used to be a certain way and we had expectations of how it was going to be, but because relationships are fluid and ever-changing, some there may be pivots there may be alterations or whatever happens and then you just have to you know come full front with it and come clean and say hey this is how things are going to be operating moving forward and i just want to let you know and if you have any feedback i'm open to hearing it and th that's sort of how you go from having an existing relationship to modifying it but you 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 want to you want to explain to your team or to your clients why the changes are being made and how it makes sense for the business as a whole. Yeah, yeah, okay. What about uh, relationships with clients? You mentioned having uh, agreements um, with our paying customers. Talk to us a little bit about the liability that we might be uh, closing off there. Yeah, well, the, the way that liability works is that from a, from a general legal perspective, um, when you are facilitating an activity or a service for someone, you have a responsibility at law to make sure that they're going to be safe and also to make sure that they do not suffer any damages um, or injury while they're with you. And as you can imagine, and as the stories that I've heard from my clients around the salon space, it certainly is within the realm of possibility that something may happen where a client suffers damages, suffers injury, they're displeased with the, the result of uh, a hair treatment or something that happened or things went totally sideways or they got burned by an equipment or there was something with microblading that went wrong. Like there's, there's unfortunately, there's an infinite potential of things that, have, that can go wrong. And in the instances of, of where I've worked with different salon owners in the past is explaining to them that A, this liability exists and that B, it's a common practice in many other industries to have clients agree to a waiver of liability before providing services to them. So if you look at the yoga, the Pilates space, before someone is allowed to enter into, um, enter into the space, they have to sign a waiver of liability, which basically says, whatever happens while I'm in your care, I'm not going to hold you legally responsible and I revoke my right to be able to sue you. And I think the salon industry, there hasn't really been a so much of a, a tradition about waivers of liability, but in the clients that I've worked with, I found a lot of success and I found a lot of clients really pleased with the possibility that in the relationships they have with their clients, they are able to have their clients sign a waiver of liability that says like, hey, these are the activities that we're going to be doing or here are the services that we're going to be providing to you. And these are the risks of us providing these services to you. 
And, you know, before, before you come and receive the treatment from us, you understand what the activities are, you understand the risks, you understand the outcomes, you're voluntarily participating, and you agreed not to hold us legally responsible for anything that happens when you're in the chair. So this is really interesting to me. This would be something that you would do on the first visit of a client before they become a client rather than every visit? Yeah, the, the way that waivers of liability work is um, someone is signing away their rights to bring an action for you based on the type of activity that you're doing and the equipment that you're using and what the risks are. So long as you are continuing to provide the same type of activity in the mm -hmm. same context, um, with the same equipment, with the same risks, nothing has to change because they've already agreed to participate in that activity with those risks. Mm -hmm. But like, let's say if, if we use as an example, microblading. So let's say microblading was never an option and was you know not, not something that we introduced. And then suddenly this, the, the salon starts offering microblading. At that point, you would want to add microblading to the waiver and have people re-sign it because now they're doing a new activity with new risks. Got it, got it. Okay, this is great. Let's uh, switch to team now, because I know this is one of the places that owners can feel a little bit fearful. Uh, and there's a lot of unknowns around building and growing a team and employing. So let's first talk about contractors versus employee employees. Uh, what are the things or the different things and the differences between the two that we have to think about? The generally speaking, even before we speak about what the differences are, the practical differences, the biggest one is that with your when you have an employee, you have a more you have more control over the way the services are provided, but you are responsible for withholding the um, you're res responsible for withholding uh, the taxes on behalf of your employee, which means you directly pay the government for uh, the taxes that would be paid, that that person would pay otherwise. And then secondly, um, the, that person is provided certain securities under employment standards that they are entitled to by virtue of being an employee. Whereas if they, whereas if someone is a contractor, the idea is they're a contractor, they don't have the same um, legislative protections that an employee would have as well a contractor is responsible for paying their own taxes. So if you have a contractor and the agreement is, you know, they get $45 per, per client that sits in the chair, then you pay them the full $45 and it's then their resp responsibility to go off and pay the government their taxes. If you have someone who's an employee and you have an hourly rate, they're not going to receive that full hourly rate. They're going to receive their payment after you pay taxes on their behalf for them. So practically, like those are the biggest difference. Those are the biggest differences when it comes to it. But the crux of the employee and contractor distinction always comes down to the degree of control that you have over the way the services are provided. So the way that you want to think about a contractor is a contractor is someone who operates their own business. They have their own business. They do their own thing. They're completely independent from you. Um, ideally, they're not following a schedule. You're not allowed to mandate for them, you know, what time they have to be in and what time they have to leave. And when they have clients, they'll come in and they'll let you know what their availability is and everything works in that particular way. As well with contractors, again, ideally, 
Um, you could have contractors who uh, they're using their own equipment. They do not have to wear staff uniforms and they have much more freedom over the way the services themselves are provided. So let's say there's someone who's a specialist at coloring hair and that like that's that person's business. That's what that person does. They're a contractor. You are never allowed to instruct them how to color someone's hair. You are outsourcing part of your business to this particular professional who operates their own business and you are contracting them to provide that service to your clients. Conversely, with an employee, you can exercise as much control as you want to have. For example, if there's a receptionist, you can say you have to be here from 8.30 to 4.30. You have to use our software to enter information into the computer. You have to wear our t-shirt or our uniform. Uh, you get paid a uniform amount no matter how many clients you see or how many hours you work. And then to take that an another level further, um, with an employee as well, you're allowed, you're allowed to say exactly how the services have to be done. So, um, you know, if you're coloring hair, they, they come in, this is the first thing you do, this is the second thing you do, this is the third thing you do, all of that stuff, you're allowed to control exactly how the services are provided, whereas a contractor operates their own business. Corey, I, I wonder if there is some ambiguity around those that are paid commission only. And I know that often there's lack of clarity on whether or not they're an employee or whether they're in a contractor because they're really not a contractor. Um, but because they're being paid commission only, it's very hard or there is some lack of clarity around what do you do when you're not doing income generating work because there's no commission being provided on part of the fee. How do we get the person to contribute to, contribute to the team activities and sort of the in between the back, back of stage uh, work? What are your thoughts on that? The, the first thing I'll say is that the, what we always have to remember when it comes to the contractor employee distinction is that they're going to look at all of the different factors combined and based on that, they're going to look at everything from a big picture perspective and make an assessment of whether or not someone is a contractor or an employee. For clarity's sake, when I'm saying they, usually I'm referring to a governmental organization. It's, it's you, when the, the, the rare problems for contractor employee questions come up internally, that's quite rare because usually parties will have an agreement. And often I even hear from clients what they'll say is like, no, my team all want, want to be contractors. The issue is when you have employees, you're making certain deductions and payments to the government. And if you want to just have contractors, technically you're circumventing paying some of those taxes, even if you're treating your team like employees. So it's, it's, rare, it's rarer that the issue comes up around the classification internally where someone's complaining like, oh, well, I want to be, you know, I want to be a, a, an employee. I want to be a contractor, but you call me an employee or the issue, the real, real risk to business owners is that you misclassify your team. You call everyone a contractor. And then there's some sort of audit, maybe because one of those contractors doesn't pay their taxes, which tips the government off to the business. And then I've seen things unravel from that particular perspective. So I, I'm going to answer your question, but I just want to clarify for everyone what the what the issue is the, the issue is the risk of being audited for a misclassification 
which if it can be proved that you have misclassified, especially for years, there's a penalty and then there's interest on that penalty. So that's a situation that you want to avoid. So to answer your question, when it comes to someone who's only paid commission, that would be one indication of a contractor, but still you would look at the big picture perspective of everything. And, um, and okay, so we understand that the payment is more of an indication of contractor, but whose equipment do they use? And do, or do they have mandated hours? And do you control the way the services are provided and, and all those other things that I, that I spoke to? And the other thing that you also just want to be worried about, not worried about, that you want to turn your mind to as a CEO, if you're only paying people commission and they're doing work that is technically unpaid, over a period of time, if they can show that the amount that they're earning is below minimum wage for the hours they worked, then you, then you run the real risk of you know, receiving a complaint and receiving a fine and someone commencing an action against you for compensation. Okay, so I think it's clear to me already, because I know that there is a minimum payment for the hours if the commission doesn't reach, um, doesn't reach that minimum payment, then they do get the minimum payment. And the classification is that they are employees because they, the owner is paying tax. And so I think that sorts it out clearly. So if someone is an employee, then you do have the control over the hours, the um, the work that they're doing in between, because by default, even if they don't make commission, you are paying them, even though it may be minimum wage. So I think that makes that super clear and removes all ambiguity yeah. about, okay, well, meanwhile, you're not paying me because I'm commission only and on my bum. Well, actually, I am paying you because I'm going to be paying you uh, well, at, at minimum, minimum wage. Okay, last but not least, let's just quickly talk about non-compete because I think this is another challenge, um, being able to say when you leave here that you can, the things that you can and you can't do. What, what's your stance on that, Corey? The first thing to know is that when it comes to non-competes, they, they, it's very, very difficult to have a non-compete apply to a contractor um, just because by virtue of them being a contractor, they operate and run their own business. So um, it's, it would be very, very difficult for you to say to someone, hey, uh, you know, even though you operate your own business and you focus, you know, on, uh, on curls and on um, uh, what's, what's the word when you color someone's hair? <laughs> being a colorist? <laughs> sure. Well, let's say being a colorist. So going back to the example of a colorist. Um, so if you, if you go back to that example, that person's a contractor, they operate their own business. At law, it's very, very difficult and it's counterintuitive for you to say, well, you're only allowed to do that here even though you run your own business and all of those things. So the first thing is contractor plus non-compete doesn't really work and shouldn't really work. Um, when it comes to employees and non-competes, um, it's my, my, my recommendation and my approach always is a holistic one in the sense of, I would speak to my employees about what my expectations of them working at my salon are as they're starting, or even if we're in the middle of a relationship, like what my expectations are. So one expectation would be like, Hey, I'm excited to have you work here, you know, moving forward, you know, if, if in the future when the relationship ends, you know, I, I don't think it's appropriate for you to take our clients or, you know, just go down the street and, and open another salon. To briefly explain the general principle of a non-compete and when it would apply, it usually 
the, the balance here is protecting the business owner and their business, but then also protecting the, the professional and their ability to earn a living based on their profession and what they do. So it's always going to be competing interest between that. When you look at something like a salon, I think you have a better chance if, if you have a specialization, it may be easier for you to have a non-compete apply. And a non-compete will always come down to the reasonableness of it. So like, to what degree are you trying to restrict someone's ability to earn their own wage will always be the question. So I've seen some ridiculous ones where it's like, you know, for five years over, you know, 300 kilometers, you're not going to cut anyone's hair. You're not going to color anyone's hair, right? That would never stand. But um, things that you, things that do make more sense is like, if you're, if you're have, if you have an employee and you're teaching them a particular specialization, you could say something like, you know, you agree that within a three kilometer radius, you will not um, open a, a, a salon that specifically does color treatments and work of a colorist for a period of eight months. Something like that could apply, but in 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 principle, non competes normally apply to an op when to someone who, you know, was paid substantially, um, to someone who worked in a very specific niche type of, of business. And in that case, it's okay to restrict that because that person, you know, if they're not doing a colors, they can still do other things. But like a general sweeping non-compete, like, hey, you won't, you won't work at any other salon for 20 kilometers for a period of two years. And, and when that person was an employee, they were a part-time employee, very, very difficult to actually enforce those rights. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's a it's a hard pill to swallow, I think, for some people. Um, but that's really good to clear that up. All right. Um, Corey, you're a business owner yourself. What is a yeah. quote or a mantra that uh, keeps you moving forward, keeps you sane, that you can share with us? I, when, yeah. I think that question of, of what a mantra or a quote that, I, that keeps me going, the better it gets, the better it gets. I always mm -hmm. believe that things are always getting better and that, you know, some, some days you look at your monthly revenue and it's not where you want it to be, but I still always believe that things are always getting better and that I believe that tomorrow will be a great day and that if, you know, if, it ha if something that I was hoping to happen didn't happen today it can it can just as easily happen tomorrow nice i love that all right what about uh, a book a podcast some type of resource that you know salon owners should get their hands on i think something that would be really helpful we've created a legal essential checklist for salon owners uh, which is provided by conscious counsel and i think we've seen a lot of clients really really love using it because Usually the first question for salon CEOs is where do I start? What do I need? You know, what's pot, you know, what's missing or what do I need? And basically we've come up with a super comfortable, uh, accessible checklist for you to see the salons that are operating at best legal practices. This is what they have in place. So that's something that can be really helpful. Amazing. I appreciate that. We'll make sure that we get a link to that in the show notes of this podcast. Corey, thank you for sharing your words of wisdom uh, and just making uh, an otherwise uh, tricky topic, easy breezy and a little bit of fun, which I really appreciate. 
Thanks, Larissa. I had fun. I hope that you had fun too. And that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you, Corey, so much for joining me. All right. I'd love to know your biggest takeaway from today's chat, what resonated. And remember, uh, I'm always a messenger. So let's chat. Otherwise, you'll find me in the Profitable Successful Salon Owners Facebook group. Look forward to seeing you there. Otherwise, see you sometime, same place next week. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the podcast. Tune in every week as I reveal the latest insights and advice on what it takes to truly master your inner salon CEO and master your salon success. Subscribe to the Salon Owners Collective podcast on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at www.salonownerscollective.com. But make sure to join me in my Facebook group for answers to common questions and much, much more. Thanks for listening and I look forward to tuning in with you again next week.